back on the Cocoa Pods podcast, a feature of the Bird Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We talk about all the issues pertaining to maternal mortality and morbidity, especially in rural America, and how we can mitigate some of these risks. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist, a family physician, a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon, and a proponent for natural childbirth. I am fortunate to have with me today Dr. Afolabi Brown. He's a plastic surgeon and he's the Chief Medical Director of Image Plastic Surgery Center in Macon, Georgia. Dr. Brown, welcome to our show. Thank you. I want you to speak to your training and how your path to becoming a plastic surgeon. Yeah, it, it was a big experience. When I came to America, I think that was in 1989, I had to sit for an exam at that time called ECFMG. And uh, luckily for me, when I passed, I tried to get into a residency. Uh, actually, the first residency I tried to was in OBGYN. And uh, I went to some hospitals in Washington, D.C. area. I remember going to some of these hospitals. They won't even give me an application form. The name of the hospital was Washington Hospital Center. Eventually, I, I got accepted at uh, Providence Hospital for OBGYN in D.C. Unfortunately, their program was on probation, so I have to lose one year. So next time, instead of me applying for it around the area I was in D.C., I actually physically went into this hospital to make sure that by seeing me, I'm actually accepted. Because at Washington Hospital Center, <laughs> my experience there was very bad. I saw a young lady, and I asked to be given a residency form. She looked at me strangely and called an older lady who was chain-smoking, and that one just said, go ahead and give him the form. I mean, I'm sorry for my behavior myself. As soon as they gave me the form, I just threw it right in the trash, right in front of them, because obviously... <laughs> You feel disrespect. You yeah, felt feel, disrespected by the process absolutely. of getting an application just as an a application. doctor just for residency training. Just an application. And once I saw the behavior, I just threw it in the trash right in front of them. So I had to reapply the following year to a hospital that I know are very receptive to black physicians. physicians. So did you ever practice as an OBGYN for that first year? Never. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because the uh, the Providence Hospital was on probation, and they they canceled their residency. So, I, now the following year, I applied to a hospital in New York, Harlem Hospital, that I know are very receptive uh, receptive to black physicians, and I was accepted to do general surgery, which I did for five years. Doing general surgery in America is in form of hierarchy; twelve people may start maybe about three or four people we finish. Is that called a transitional year system in which there are a lot of first-year residents, but in the fourth or fifth year, the number of residents decrease? No, they call it a pyramidal system. It's like a pyramid. You start at the base, about 12 people. Now, in your second year or third year, some people may go and do anesthesia, some people may do uh, uh, ophthalmology. You know, I chose... At the point in time, when I got to my fourth year, and I know it's going to be a problem going forward, I applied for plastic surgery residency. They allowed me to do my five years of general surgery. 
but my focus was on plastic surgery at that time. So you were able to finish the plastic surgery training at Harlem? Well, I finished it my five years, but when you finish proper general surgery in America, you have to be a chief resident. So I was never a chief resident in general surgery, but I did my five years in general surgery. Now, to be a plastic surgeon, you have to do a minimum of three to five years of general surgery. So it, because I did five years of general surgery, uh, it made it easier for me to get into a plastic surgery program. Now, know very well, because of the pyramidal system, there are some people trying to be a general surgeon in those days, in the 90s, that actually do residency for up to 10 years, 12 years, in order to finish as a general surgeon. You have to finish as a, general, as a, as a chief resident before you can finish general surgery. So which I did as a plastic surgeon, uh, as a plastic surgery resident, I was a chief resident in plastic surgery. When I finished, uh, when I finished and then I moved from New York to, uh, to Georgia. Now, did you see any racial bias in the residents that were able to finish in five years as opposed to the, some of the ones that had to continue? And why couldn't you become a chief resident? So there are two questions in that. Well, the problem with in, in America is that now at that time, they needed manpower. They, you don't have a lot of uh, physician assistants in those days. So they need a lot of residents to do a manual work. So they, they will accept a large number of residents. In some other programs, what they do is that before you start your general surgery program, they know that some people are going to be doing out of 12 people, maybe three will be going to do ENT. Some will be going to do ophthalmology. So everybody knew what they were going to do. But in the program at Harlem, you don't really know if you're going to finish or not. It depends on the combination of your behavior, your score, and your ability to do surgery. Wow. And so, you know, after you were, you finished that five years of general surgery, then you went to a... Uh, plastic surgery subspecialty. Yeah, actually, I actually applied to the same program program in the same hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but I had to meet with the, although it was a Harlem program, but it's controlled by Columbia University. So I had to meet with the chief of plastic surgery at Columbia to be introduced and to be accepted to the program in Harlem. So now you are a plastic surgeon, you've been practicing, you have a wealth of experience, and uh, uh, you take care of a, a broad spectrum of patients, including minority patients. What barriers do you have in taking care of your patients as a, a, a plastic surgeon, American-trained plastic surgeon, originally from Nigeria? Well, when I came to Macon, initially I was accepted. I mean, we shared calls, and everything was going well. But um, unfortunately, at a point in time, some of the people I was sharing calls with, they are patients that are white. They don't want me to see them. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want me to see them. So, so the, the Caucasian patients didn't want you to see them. Yeah, and that created a problem with the people I was taking calls with. Mm. 
Wow. And so you had to pull out of that core group. Well, I mean, that group, which later formed a group by themselves, they mm. pulled out mm-hmm. of the main hospital in Mekong, which is the medical center. Mm. They pulled out, they formed a group by themselves. There were three of them at the time, and the, re- the remaining two of us mm. at that time at the medical center, we cover for each other. So when you take care of minority patients, I mean, do you face, um, what kind of barriers do you face? I've heard of some physicians telling me that even their judgment, their clinical judgment is questioned, that their surgical skills are questioned by non-peers, people that are not their peers, and at times also by their peers, but in a way that does not make sense. Yeah, I have two examples of those. Uh, exam- you know, if, when I do breast reduction, a lot of women have extra tissue on their side, and I try to manage that by doing liposuction at the biggest hospital in Macon. I was challenged for years, over 10 years, that I was doing illegal surgery. And I fought with them all the time that it's not, it, that's a way to do a breast. You can do a breast reduction by just doing simple liposuction. But we have to take tissue out for the insurance people to know the amount of breast tissue that you took out. Unfortunately, one of my colleagues went to complain that if he had to do a similar surgery, that he had to charge the patient for that procedure. I don't do that. Uh, secondly, I remember doing removal of uh, a disease of the skin, which we call um, uh, hydradenitis. That's infection of deep tissue in the skin. And this happened to be a white patient. This same white patient in this same hospital, I've done a similar surgery for her five years prior of the infection that affected her groin. Now, this time around, she had this same lesion under her breast tissue. And the nurse who saw the patient to be cleared for surgery was trying to tell me that I was trying to do illegal surgery, that I wanted to do a breast reduction. And I, just, I, I tried to convince them that, look, this is a removal of skin of the lesion that extends under the breast and the upper abdomen. There's no way you can close that wound unless you rearrange the breast tissue and move the skin of the abdomen up in order to close the wound. Now, it was very annoying in the sense that even while I was doing the surgery, I insisted on doing the surgery because I knew exactly what I was doing. The hospital actually told some nurses to stay in the room to monitor me. These are nurses that are not supposed to be in my room. They have nothing to do other than to watch to see what I was doing. And even after all this, I was sent a letter to respond that I did an illegal surgery. This was after the fact that the tissue that was taken out, which is hydradenitis, had been confirmed to be hydradenitis by the pathology department of the same hospital. I still got a letter to explain myself why I did the surgery. It made no sense at all. It's more of an harassment, you know, for this kind of uh, behavior. So we're here today talking about some of the issues that minority physicians face in taking care of their minority patients. And, you know, we've been, you know, talking about just uh, issues that even a skilled and specialized surgeon faces 
in making his own autonomous decisions about his patients that he already has empathy for and is invested in their well-being. And so uh, this is uh, what we're talking about in this episode today. Dr. Brown, can you speak to your training? How was your path to becoming a plastic surgeon? Yeah, that was a very interesting being a plastic surgeon. I got into residency program after missing a possibility to do that in the Washington, D.C. area. Now, the plan was to finish general surgery and then maybe continue as a, uh, as a general surgeon. Unfortunately, to be a general surgeon in America, you have to be a chief resident. And there's always politics and limit to the number of chief residents in the country. So at the time that I went in, there were five chief residents at my hospital at the time. But by the second year, there were only about three or four. So some of us can't finish as, as general surgeon. In this, my second year, I started trying to do surgeries with the plastic surgeons. So I was doing general surgery and plastic surgery at the same time. You know, I, take, I took calls for general surgery. I also kind of worked with the plastic surgeon at the time. So in my fifth year, I was accepted to be a resident plastic surgeon as a resident. And that took from 1997 to 1999. Wow. And so was it an easy path? What are some of the challenges that you faced that you could use to encourage and help another aspiring plastic surgeon? Yeah, I think the bottom line is devotion and determination. And I also have to say I was lucky. So that's all I can say about that. Devotion, determination, and luck. Well, what kind of obstacles did you have in your training path? Well, at the time as a general surgeon, I wasn't sure if I was going to finish or not. Because if you're an American trained person and you come into Harlem Hospital at the time, you are guaranteed to finish. But if you are a foreign medical graduate, so, you know, there are so many of you looking for one spot and uh, you never know which way it may go. So you can work hard or you can study hard, whichever one make you accomplish your goals. Wow. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. So, you know, as an obstetrician, you know, some of the obstetrician gynecology, some of the issues that I see that can affect a woman's body image and happiness is at times they might have some congenital abnormalities of the perineal private area. And one of the structures there is called the labia minora. And at times it's just abnormally long or abnormally large and it causes problems with just, you know, body image perception. At times the extra long skin structure gets caught in the women's underwear while they're performing exercise or uh, interferes with sexual intercourse. As a plastic surgeon, do you see these situations and how do you help resolve it surgically? Yeah, we do. And it has become a large problem recently. And the reason why it's become a large problem recently are people undergoing weight loss surgeries. Now, when you do weight loss surgery, after losing about 100 pounds, everything, I mean, everything hangs, including your labial uh, mineral. So we have to find a way to try and, uh, and shorten it to be inside the body of the labial uh, major. So you want to make sure that it's not too long and then it's not obstructing, whether physically 
or during exercise, it gets trapped. It can be uncomfortable when you're exercising, especially when you're riding a bike. It can be a problem when you're having sexual intercourse. Uh, it may be a major problem for your partner. So we try to reduce the size of it, and the goal is to also make sure that it's it looks more aesthetic by making sure that it doesn't show beyond the edge of the labial majora. So what is the name of this procedure? What is it called? There is no special name for it, but the, the focus is to know where the blood supply as well as the nerve supply of the labia minora is coming from so that you don't compromise the sensation in that area or, or let the, after your surgery, to allow the minora to, to die or break down. So we, have to, we normally do what we call a wedge excision. For some people, there are some people that they are so big that you can't do a wedge excision for. You have to do like what we call a, a flap, a special flap to make sure you reduce the length and, and, and width of the minoral to fit inside the labia majora. Wow. And then just going up from there, I know that, you know, in a uh, pregnant or recently delivered woman, they deliver a baby, uh, but at times the baby comes out with some congenital anomalies. And one of the common ones is that the baby has extra fingers and extra toes. Mm. And please, can you speak to the diagnosis of that and how that is managed as a plastic surgeon with also experience with hand surgery? When it comes to multiple fingers, we call that polydactyly. And that means extra digits. Now, the extra digits have levels of complexity. Uh, you know, the extra digit may be just be attached to the rest of the digits by just soft tissue. And that's very easy to address. Some as simple as just tying a suture and that digit will fall off. And some, if the, if the soft tissue attachment is wide, you know, it may have to be done in the operating room. Some are more complex. That is a combination of a soft tissue and bone. So you have to try and cut off the bone and then remove the soft tissue and then make sure that the closure blends with the rest of the finger or the rest of the digit. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the fingers being attached to, to each other, we call that syndactyly. And the same thing, that could also be due to uh, connection by soft tissue or bone. So if his bone is more complex uh, because you have enough uh, supplies on either side of where you're going to be cutting you, so you want to make sure you don't compromise in, in the nerve supply between the two digits that are connected to, you know, that are joined together. So if it's just soft tissue attachment, you can do what we call multiple flaps, like, you know, we call it Z-plasty to release that. Now, if the bone is involved, you want to make sure there is function at the different level of digits. So to make sure that when you cut the bone and separate the, the digits, that there is functional. Because if it's not functional, the, you know, the alternative is just to just cut the digit off. If you can't bend or move the digit one way or the other, it becomes a site for trauma. So it has to be removed. So in a newborn baby, when do you normally do these surgeries? Because, you know, the baby comes out and the mother 
notices these findings, um, how long after birth do you perform these kind of surgeries? Yeah, if it's if it's a soft tissue attachment and simple, you know, you can do that almost immediately. The baby won't feel so much pain, you know, so you can just tie uh, a six suture on that and it will fall off. Now, if it's more complex, you want the baby to be at least 10 pounds or at least three months old before you, you do that. So another kind of injury that we see that is obstetric related to the baby is when there has been like a forceps delivery, which is becoming not as common, there can be marks on the baby's face that can lead to scarring. Or when there has been a very rapid caesarean section, probably in the hands of a less experienced surgeon, and there's an inadvertent injury to the baby's face. And especially with a female baby, that can result in scarring and can probably cause emotional trauma later on in life. How would you as a plastic surgeon approach these obstetric-related facial injuries of the baby? Thank you for the question. Um, there are so many possibilities of outcomes. When there is that kind of injury, you want to make sure that the repair is done meticulously. Now, unfortunately, people are different. I've had an experience with a young five-year-old, you know, apart from a baby, young five-year-old girl who had a big scar after an accident, and the mom was so worried about that for two years, and after the second year, the old scar disappeared. But then when you repair a scar like that, you just do the best primarily to make sure that the patient can have a good cosmetic uh, result, but there's nothing guaranteed. Wow. Now, these scars can progress from like a simple scar to a hypertrophic scar to a keloidal scar. And we see that even after, even in a caesarean section scar. Can you please explain to us w what all these different kinds of scars are? For kids, the scars are formed by deposits of what we call collagen. And, you know, babies have a way of still, they still have a level of regenerative capabilities. So we, we don't really see keloid in young kids. We may see what we call hypertrophic scar. And then um, the way to manage that is just tell the mom to uh, apply pressure or massage the scar as frequently as possible. Because number one, the kind of treatment you can use for hypertrophic scar or keloid, which is steroid, you don't want to give that to, to young kids. So the best thing is to use uh, pressure and massage. Wow. And then for the keloidal scars, you know, are they like they darker, are they thicker in appearance? Well, this is always a problem, especially when mothers see the scar. When the scar is thick in kids, just because the scar is thick doesn't mean it's keloid. It's most likely hypertrophic scar. Now, a hypertrophic scar is thick. Well, it becomes keloid when it's growing beyond the periphery of the scar itself. Another issue that I want to talk to that women think about and worry about is, you know, when they have to have a breast reduction or a breast augmentation. And this, you know, this cars that that leaves behind. So what would be like the indication for a breast reduction? And 
apart from the obvious indication for a breast augmentation, what other indications are there for these two procedures? The common problems with women is that they don't know that the, their insurance companies cover certain surgeries. The insurance companies will cover breast reductions provided your body mass index is scaled to whatever the insurance accepts as a minimum amount of breast to be taken out after when you do a breast reduction. So depending on your body mass index and your breast is, you know, excessively large, the insurance company, you know, they use so many ways of doing that. You have to remove a minimum amount of breast tissue to correct a, a problem that most women present with. Okay, you have ex excessively large breasts associated with what we call back pain. Uh, the back pain can be so bad for some patients that they have to do back surgeries. And because some women want to keep their breasts in when they wear clothes, they wear very tight bras. The problem is when you wear tight bras, it affects your shoulder, leading to depression of the shoulders to the point that some women's skin break down with exposure of the clavicular bone. The other way that the insurance people may approve the surgery is if you have excessive sweating between and under the breast tissue. And also when when the breasts are so big, because of the weight of the breast, when some women don't wear bra to keep their breasts up, there's so much weight pulling down that the sternum, that the, the central part of the chest is sticking out beyond what is normal because of the weight of the breast tissue. So the insurance will approve that if your breasts are excessively big. Now, when it comes to breast lift, that is a different ballgame. The insurance people will not pay for that. Uh, we are seeing a lot of that in women undergoing weight loss surgery, which has become so popular now because after the weight loss, I mean, their breasts become completely deflated sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, but the insurance will not pay for that. So what do the women do? They've lost all this weight, but then there are certain portions of their body that look uh, disproportionate. Unfortunately, after weight loss surgery, the only, type of, uh, the only type of surgery that insurance pay for is what we call a panicolectomy. Now, most women, especially black women, cannot pronounce that word panicolectomy. So they always think they are doing a tummy tuck which is completely different. Now, the insurance will not will approve for a panicolectomy if you have done your weight loss surgery at least one year after your weight loss surgery, and then you have been treated by another doctor for skin rash, skin breakdown in the pubic area. You constantly have sweating and skin breakdown for at least three months. Then the insurance can approve it for a panicolectomy. Now, some insurance... Now, I try not to do a panicolectomy because the result is not optimal. So I like to see if the insurance people will allow me to tighten the patient's abdominal muscle. If they don't do that, it becomes a problem because I've seen cases of some general surgeons, even some plastic surgeons, that when they do your panicolectomy, if your belly button is at the level where they have to cut the extra skin, they cut your belly button off. I can't do that one. Is it because it's not aesthetically it, it, pleasing? Exactly. So, Dr. Brown, just before we leave this issue of the, you know, breast reduction, what is the main goal, apart from the obvious in reducing the breast mass, what is the main goal of a breast reduction surgery? 
the main goal is to reduce the weight of the breast so that it can elevate the symptoms that the patients have, including back pain, shoulder pain. Now, when we used to do this in the 90s, that was the goal. Nowadays, so many young people are about to do a breast reduction for a 12-year-old. So to do a breast reduction for a 12-year-old, you want to also make sure that the breast they look good. So you want to make sure that when you're doing your breast reduction, that you have to elevate the nipple to where it's supposed to be, at the level of the attachment of your breast to your chest, or at least one centimeter above that. That's the normal location of the nipple for a healthy young woman. Thank you for clarifying that. You know, another issue that, you know, when pregnant women have their babies, and they could have had an antenatal diagnosis of a condition called cleft lip and palate. And at times in low resource setting, they might not have an antenatal diagnosis. And so they have, they have, they, they give birth to babies that have, you know, congenital abnormalities of the, of the mouth. Can you speak to this cleft lip and palate, how it is diagnosed and how you could treat this from a plastic surgery point of view? Yes, cleft lip and palate um, can be simple and complex. And it, it can also be an emergency. Now, it becomes an emergency if the lip is so short that the mother cannot feed the baby. So we have to do what we call a lip uh, adhesion. That, that is, you have to try and quickly just allow the lip to come together to allow the ability of the child to to feed because if you don't do that, you know, any attempt by the child, the milk will just be flowing out. The baby may not be able to take the, uh, the milk. So that's the first one. Now, the other emergency problem is if there's a bad cleft palate, that's the cleft palate is the hard part of the, of the mouth at the roof of the inside of the mouth. If that is so bad that, when the baby is feeding, the instead of the, the milk to go through the normal route downwards, it can go into the nose. And that can stop the baby from uh, ability to breathe properly. So you have to find a way to do an immediate temporary repair, you know, until you can then wait later on when the baby is about three months, six months, at least 10 pounds before you now do what we call a stage repair or proper repair. Well, is this a common condition uh, in the United States, for instance? It's very, it's very common. It's very common. Wow. Yeah, it's very common. I'm not sure of the percentage, but it's very common. And then what are the times that you have to do a rhinoplasty, you know, colloquially known as a nose job? Well, you say, now, anytime you have a cleft lip, nasal deformity for a child. So the cleft lip, palate, and the nose are a complex deformity. So for a child, you may have to do that because what happens is that the floor of the nose is the roof of the mouth. So you have to find a way, and then because of that, the nose is deformed. We call it a special cleft lip nose that has to be addressed. Now, Later on, when especially men and women, you can do a, a more cosmetic or 
you may have to do a nose job to Im- improve your ability to breathe properly because uh, sometimes some people are, you know, they grow up and they have a step off of the inside of their nostril when they smoke cigarette, they smoke, uh, they snuff cocaine. We call it cocaine nose so that, you know, it, it may affect their ability to breathe. So, you know, when we do a nose job, it could be functional, also cosmetic. So depending on whatever is going on. Wow. Well, we are still on the issue of the face. I mean, you know, a lot of women now are enjoying artificial lashes. That can have an effect of removing the natural lashes. And at times as a plastic surgeon, I believe the procedure is called the blepharoplasty. Well, no, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, lashes are different from what we call um, blepharoptosis. Uh, that is when the the upper eyelid is hanging too much, especially even when you do a weight loss surgery. Now, when it comes to lashes, what we found is there, there is something that can be used to treat the lashes chemically, which is called lattice. Yeah, people can be given lattice to apply on their upper eyelid and their lashes may grow. Now, the simple one that they just attach can easily be removed, adjusted. The only problem with some of those is that it can cause irritation of the cornea, which we may have to address later on. Now, but when it comes to actual blepharoptosis, then we may have to do eyelid surgery. Now, that could be different. It could be cosmetic or it could be obstructive because uh, if it is hanging too much, that means when you look at your visual field can be blocked by your hanging upper eyelid. So we may have to elevate the actual muscle itself so that you don't block your pupil. Or if it's just hanging skin, we just address the skin. So there are different complexity of uh, what needs to be done with that. So what is your verdict? Is it good to wear artificial lashes for a long period of time for a woman to improve her the way she looks, or is it not? Uh, it, it, uh, everybody is different. You'll be amazed that there are some people who have natural long lashes. It's so common, people will be surprised. That is an individual thing, and you know, to me, I prefer for them to try lattice to see if it's going to work. The only problem is when you use lattice, you know, it may have to be done for a very long time before you have that elongated uh, growth. And that may actually be required in some people with facial trauma because uh, after facial trauma, I've seen so many cases of where the, you know, the eye, you know, the eyelid lashes actually get stripped off. And then you have to adjust that because the growth of the eyelashes have to be up not downward, because if it's going downwards, then it's going to irritate the eyelid. You may have to prick those eyelashes out. And then some of these artificial ones they they do, if it's not properly done, can also cause a trauma for the cornea when women go to sleep. Dr. Brown, there are two other conditions that I wanted you to speak to. The first is this condition called hydroadenitis suprativa, in which women have a lot of, you know, pimple-like scarring, under the armpits and around the vulva area. Can you speak to this condition, the diagnosis and the surgical treatment? Yeah, this is a very common problem that is not well recognized by a lot of uh, physicians. And by the time you see some of these patients, 
they must have gone to the emergency room. They go to the emergency room. They do incision and drainage. The problem you know, comes back again. Is a is an infection of the subcutaneous tissue, what we call the apocrine or sexual sweat glands, which you see mainly under the armpits, in the vulva area, even in the breast, and sometimes on the face and buttock area. So now, after chronic infection and healing, the area, the skin becomes fibrotic. So when there's a new infection, and you try to manage some doctors, try to manage manage with antibiotics, since there's a lot of scar tissue in there, there's no blood in there, there's no blood flowing to the, t- the skin, you know, giving antibiotics is useless. So you really have to do surgery to remove all the involved part of the skin, whether it's under the armpit or in the vulva area. Depending on the complexity in the armpit, there's a way that we can close the wound primarily as a plastic surgeon, unlike when I, you know, in my days as a general surgeon, general surgeons, we, you know, they will try to close it, but if they cannot close it, they will just leave it open. Whether in the armpit or in the vulva area, you just leave it open. And it can be debilitating for patients. In the vulva area, it can be so complex that uh, I just did a lady that the infection went all the way to her inner verge. And then because of that, any kind of surgery we, that you do for them, because the buttocks are always in touch, most likely the wound will break down. So uh, for some of these patients, when it's really complex in that area, you may have to do a diverting colostomy. You have to divert stool from that area for a while, temporarily, to, before, in order to manage the infection. And also in the vulva area, it can be so complex for some women that you have to remove all the vulva skin and do a complete reconstruction of the vulva for the women. It can be very debilitating. When it affects the buttock, that's a major area, especially when it affects the part of the buttock that meet together. Because, you know, especially for women, there's always contact, there's always sweating, it can be a major problem. So you have to try and tell them the skin has to be removed and they can't wear underwear and try to tape their buttock separate as much as possible or lay on their face to allow the buttock to separate for, for ventilation in order to allow proper healing. So, but the surgical management will achieve better results than just medically managing this. Absolutely. The only thing was that episiotomy repair. I can't imagine you as a plastic surgeon doing any vaginal repair. You guys do? No, exactly. <laughs> you have no idea. I have to do reconstruction of the vulva for two or three patients. What's the indication? Hydradenitis. Okay, yes. Yeah, we, we discussed that last yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I think it yeah, wasn't clear. of the deep tissue, yeah. of the deep skin. Yeah. It's a major problem. And then nowadays, it's become so popular that women want to look good down there also. So especially after weight loss, you see, sometimes what I do is, especially for weight loss surgery patient, you know, when everything deflated, even the labia majora is deflated. It doesn't have that healthy punch look. So you, I may have to do a fat transfer to augment the labial uh, majora. Now, sometimes you want to just address the labial majora to build it up 
without actually touching the mineral. If you are able to build it up so that you can enclose the mineral without actually doing anything to the mineral itself. So you build up the, because people get deflated after weight loss. So you may have to do a fat transfer to the mineral. Wow. We're talking to Dr. Afolabi Brown, the medical director of Image Plastic Surgery Center Incorporated. His office is located in Macon, Georgia, and is a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for coming to our podcast today. You're welcome.